We continue on now in our study through the book of James, coming now to chapter 4, and we're going to take a look at the first six verses of James chapter 4 in this particular chapter. Uh, In this bigger theme that James is dealing with here in his letter, it's about a living faith and what a living faith looks like. So here he's going to talk about um, the humble character of this living faith, beginning now at verse 1 of James chapter 4. He says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here in these first three verses of James chapter 4, James the Apostle is dealing with these ideas of why strife, conflict, tension arises among believers. Isn't that an interesting idea? I mean, here we are. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We people who are uh, fellow heirs of the kingdom of God. We have been given forgiveness of our sins. We have new life in Jesus Christ. We're all adopted together in his family. And sometimes, Christians have a great deal of trouble getting along, don't they? Well, where does this come from? Why is there sometimes this great strife, this great difficulty among believers? James speaks to this exact issue. Look at how he begins in verse 1. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? And you know, sometimes that's exactly how it feels. Sometimes strife among Christians feels like war. It feels like a violent fight. These conflicts that happen among believers, they can be bitter. They can be severe. James is not talking about the inward battle that each and every one of us face. You know the inward battle that we're talking about. We're talking about the struggle against sin, the struggle against pride, the struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil that, that I face inside of me. That's not the only place of conflict in the Christian life. Sometimes there's conflict among those that I should be having the sweetest fellowship, that the most blessed communion with, sometimes I'm at odds with them. And so it's a very logical question to ask, where do these things come from? What's the source of this conflict that oftentimes, or at least sometimes we would say, uh, arises from among believers? Well, where does it come from? James tells us it's a startling answer there in verse 1. He says, do they not come from your own desires for pleasure that war in your members. What's the source of wars and fighting among Christians? This source of conflict is always the same. There is some root of carnality, of a fleshliness, of um, unsurrendered aspects of the life, rebellious aspects of the life when it comes in our Christian life. You see, this internal war that fights within the believer, it spills out and affects my relationships with other brothers and sisters. I'll tell you this, no two believers who are both walking in the Spirit of God towards each other experience these kinds of wars and fights among themselves. Isn't that the truth? I mean, listen, if I'm fighting with another brother, both of us are not walking in the Spirit. Maybe neither one of us are, but we're not both walking in the Spirit. Maybe he's walking in the Spirit and I'm not. Uh, Maybe I'm walking in the Spirit and he's not. 
maybe we're both failing to walk in the Spirit, but I'll tell you something, we are not both walking in the Spirit and just and just really obeying the prompting of the Spirit of God in every aspect. And this is important for us to understand, because especially in the community of Christians, almost everybody who has a, a critical and a contentious attitude, they claim it comes from the Spirit of God. Now, that may happen. Listen, Jesus knew how to confront people. Uh, Jesus knew how to turn tables in the temple courts. We understand that. We we shouldn't think that this non-confrontational attitude is the highest Christian life. No, that's not what we're talking about at all. But, But we just need to understand that there are many times when we think that we're doing something for a righteous purpose, that we think that we're being inspired or led by the Spirit of God, when actually it comes from our own desires for pleasure that war in our members. It's something sinful from within us. And notice this, that the types of desires that lead to conflict are described right here. The first one is covetousness. He doesn't use the word covetousness, but when he says in verse 2, you lust and do not have, that's what covetousness is. And then in verse 2, he also says, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You see, what we have is we have covetousness leading to conflict. We have anger and animosity that leads to hatred and conflict, which is murder, murder in the heart, if not in action. Again, we see another place in this letter that James wrote where he links back to an idea in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember when Jesus used the idea in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22 to express that we can murder people in our heart by our hatred and harsh words against them, even if we do not murder them indeed. And this seems certainly to be what James is referring to here. You see, this is the source of the conflict. Let me read it to you again. Verses 1 and 2 of James 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You see, it's these uh, frustrated, sinful desires that, that lead us into conflict with one another. I want recognition, and maybe I'm jealous at you because you have it. Uh, I want attention, and I'm jealous of you because you seem to have it. Um, I, I want to feel uh, righteous and spiritual in myself, and so I'm going to lash out against you. Um, I'm too thin-skinned. I'm too Again, you could just go on and on, and you get the idea. Now, I find it fascinating how James continues on looking at verse 3. He says this, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You get the idea here? James was saying in verse 2 that we do not have because we do not ask. Do you get the idea there? We don't have. We lust. We war. We fight. We covet. We, we at least metaphorically murder one another. Certainly we murder some reputations. Doesn't that happen a lot on social media today? People have their reputations murdered. We do all these things, and yet look at the, uh, the thing of verse 2. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. That is the futility of a life lived for the desires of the flesh, for the desires of pleasure. Not only is it a life of conflict, 
but it will be fundamentally an unsatisfied life. Brothers and sisters, this is the tragic irony of the life that's lived after worldly fleshly desires. It will never reach the goal that it's stretching out for. It will give everything for that goal. But but the fundamental dissatisfaction that is found in the life of the flesh, it's not because of a lack of effort. People will give everything to pursue these things of the flesh, yet there's an essential dissatisfaction with it. And this helps us to sort of rationally understand the foolishness of living life after the lusts of the world, after our animal appetites. You are tempted to fulfill a sinful desire because you think or you hope that it might be satisfied. But you know what's going to happen? It will never be satisfied. Why don't we accept our lack of satisfaction in that particular area now instead of indulging in a lot of painful and harmful sin? That 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 itch that I'm trying to scratch, that thing that I'm hoping for, it will never be satisfied completely. So this is what I needed. I need to understand that God never intended for every desire, every whim, every lust of the flesh to be desired. No, rather, he wants something greater for me. He wants the abundant life that comes to me in Jesus Christ. Now, all of that having been said, that frustration that comes from the strife, the lack of satisfaction, yet he says also in verse 3, yet you do not have because you do not ask. The reason these destructive desires exist among Christians is because they do not seek God for their needs. When I am out of sorts with another brother or sister because they have something, whether it be recognition or status or some material thing or whatever it is, a relationship, whatever it could be, when I am out of sorts with a brother or sister because I want what they have. Do you see, I'm not seeking God for those needs, at least not in a proper way. James uses this as a way to remind us of the great power of prayer and why it may be that somebody lives in spiritual deprivation. They are a spiritual pauper or beggar because they do not pray or they don't truly ask when they pray. I'm going to say something and I'm going to call it a virtual spiritual love. What do I mean by virtual? I, I don't mean out in the virtual world. I mean that it's not an absolute spiritual law. I'm not confident enough to say that, but I'll say that, that, that it's an almost spiritual law that God does not give unless we ask. Now, again, I say virtually because there are many times that God does give when we do not ask. But it seems that many times in the Christian life, God does not give because we do not ask. And if we possess little of God and his blessing and his kingdom, almost certainly we have asked for little. What what an interesting idea that is, isn't it? Listen, let me read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who preached powerfully on this passage. He says this, quote, If you may have everything by asking and nothing without asking, 
I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is, and I beg you to abound in it. Do you know, brothers, what great things are to be had for the asking? Have you ever thought of it? Does it not stimulate you to pray fervently? All heaven lies before the grasp of the asking man. All the promises of God are rich and inexhaustible, and their fulfillment is to be had by prayer. Oh, what an important thing this is. Let me read to you this again. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Okay, there's two problems at work here that James is going First of all, we just don't ask. We don't pray. We don't pray as we should. And let me say, when I say we, I mean I. I don't pray as I should. I don't know if you're in the same boat with me on this one. But look, if there's any way to bring conviction into my life, it's to talk about prayer. Because as much as I do pray, I know I don't pray enough. I should and I could. And, And there's something in me that wants to pray more, but it's a battle, isn't it? And so that's the first problem, that we don't pray. But secondly, oftentimes, even when I do pray, in the wording of James, I ask amiss that I may spend it on my pleasures. I am not hitting the target when I pray. Instead, I'm praying in a way that will spend it on my pleasures. After first dealing with the problem of no prayer, then James is going to deal with the problem of selfish prayer. Those times when I do pray and I do ask, but I ask God with pretty much selfish motives. I have to remember this, and I think you probably need to remember it as well, that the purpose of prayer is not to persuade a reluctant God to do whatever I want him to do. No, the purpose of prayer is to align my will with God's will and in partnership with God to ask him to accomplish his will on this earth. You remember what Jesus said in what we often call the Lord's will? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I need my will aligned with God's will. So again, the purpose is not to get God to do whatever I want him to do. Isn't that clear enough to us? No, that is not the purpose of prayer. Let me quote again from Charles Spurgeon, who, as I said, he had a powerful sermon on this passage. He said this, quote, When a man so prays, he asks God to be his servant and gratify his desires. In other words, he's saying when a man prays in that manner. No, worse than that, he wants God to join him in the service of his lusts. He will gratify his lusts and God shall come and help him to do it. Such prayer is blasphemous but a large quantity of it is offered. And it must be one of the most God-provoking things that heaven ever beholds. End of quote. I think Spurgeon was on to something there. You know, 
I'm a pastor, I'm a Bible teacher, so oftentimes I'm relating this to the experience of my own life and to those who I know who are in ministry. And listen, sometimes there's prayers we pray in the ministry that are actually selfish prayers. It's something like this, oh Lord, do a great work in our midst. Oh Lord, do a great work in our church. And what I want is I want the benefits that will come to me in association with a great work. I want to be known as a great worker for God. I want to be uh, on the receiving end of these blessings. And listen, that's a dangerous place, isn't it? I can ask, and I can ask for something that in and of itself might be good, but the real reason I'm asking is so that I can spend it on my own lusts. By the way, spend there in verse 3 when he says you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures spend is the same verb that's used to describe the wasteful spending of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 you see these are destructive desires and they can persist even when we pray because our prayers are self-centered or self-indulgent So again, get back to verse 1 of chapter 4. Why this fighting among the people of God? Why this strife? Because there's something amiss in me. And sometimes that's reflected in my prayer life as well. That's why James, in verses 4 and 5, listen, this may be one of the most bold and strong sections of this letter of James. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says this, Adulterers and adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Wow. James is going back to Old Testament concepts Old Testament vocabulary to deliver a strong rebuke to fleshly Christians in his day. He says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You know, many times in the Old Testament, God spoke to his people this way when they were attracted to idolatry. He said to them, And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but you can find passages like this in Jeremiah chapter 3, Ezekiel chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel chapter 23, Hosea chapter 3, on and on. We have this concept that our idolatry, our attraction to other things is actually spiritual adultery. And as James saw it, the covetousness that these people had, that we can have as Christians. It's idolatry and it is friendship with the world. Now, hold that thought in mind. There's something kind of interesting about verse 4, where it says here in my New King James translation, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In Better Greek manuscripts, it only says, you adulteresses, in the feminine. It doesn't directly address, in the masculine, you adulterers. So basically what he's saying is, you female adulteresses. And it seems that the addition of the word adulterers, 
basically saying you female adulterer, adulteresses and you male adulterers. The addition of the word adulterers in the masculine was probably a mistaken attempt by a copyist or a scribe who thought that James was speaking about literal sexual adultery here. And he's just figuring, well, listen, we all know that uh, men can commit sexual adultery just as much as women can. Okay, we all understand that. And so he thought, listen, I better help the text out here and add adulterers in there just so everybody knows that it's referring to men as well as women. But you see, here's the idea. James is not referring specifically here to literal sexual adultery, although that idea can certainly be caught up in the spirit of this passage. But no, what he's really getting at here is simply this, the idea of spiritual adultery as it's used in the Old Testament many, many times. Again, Isaiah chapter 54, Jeremiah chapter 3, Exodus chapter 34, this idea that idolatry, covetousness, that these were manifestations of spiritual adultery. It's a heavy concept. And listen, this is something we got to take seriously. Let me read you a quote from the old Puritan commentator, John Trapp. He speaks very expressively, and I pardon myself in advance if this is a little too expressive, but it's from the old Puritan commentator, John Trapp. He speaks with this idea of spiritual adultery here. Quote, You have your hearts full of harlotry, this vile strumpet, the world, that lays forth her two breasts of profit and pleasure and ensnareth many for the trap which she, for, excuse me, for that which she must be burnt as a whore by the fire of the last day. Wow. In other words, he's understanding that this worldliness, this fleshliness, it is represented here as an adulteress that leads us away from Christ and actually makes us guilty of spiritual adultery. Again, it's worldliness that he mainly has in mind here. We know this because look at verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James recognizes that we cannot be true friends of this world system that's in rebellion against God and at the same time be a true friend of God. E even the desire for friendship with the world is dangerous. No notice what he says here in verse 4. He says this. He says, Adulterers and adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world. Maybe you're not even successful in being a friend of the world, but you want to. That's a heavy idea, isn't it? That friendship with the world can make us an enemy with God. Now listen, uh, it's a tough thing to talk about because we live in this world, don't we? And we have to get along with the people of this world. But we don't have to love this world. We don't have to give it our allegiance, certainly not in any ultimate sense. And we can, to the very best of our ability, let the values 
and the truth and the principles of the kingdom of God dominate our heart and our thinking and not the principles of this world. Now, before I go on to the next phrase here, I do just want to think about something just from verses 3 and 4. And again, just to get the idea, let me read verses 3 and 4 to you again because they're so strong. He says this, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this very strong statement by James reminds us that everything was not beautiful in the early church. Now, look, I I want to be the first one to say, when we take a look at the early church and the book of Acts and what we see there, it is something amazing. And it is something that is something of a goal that we should reach towards. And, And in many ways, maybe in most ways, the church of the world today, at least in the Western world, we fall below the zeal and the holiness and the effectiveness and the passion of the early church. I get all that. But don't think for a moment that the early church was some kind of heaven on earth, that, that they were all pure, that they were all holy, that, that they all had the heart of martyrs. No, they were in some ways a lot more like us today than we usually think. They had plenty of carnality and worldliness to deal with in the early church. The New Testament church is clearly a pattern for us as believers, but we should not over-romanticize the spiritual character of early Christians. You know, we struggle with their things and they struggled with our things. Okay, nevertheless, back to the idea here. Look now at verse 5 where he says, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit has a jealous yearning for friendship with God and some kind of distance between us and the world. Oh, no, look, I'm not trying to say that we completely turn our back on the world and we move out to the desert and we don't. No, no, no. As Jesus said, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. If you remove yourself from the world, you're not in the world. But but if you take on the values and the principles and the thinking of the world, then you're of the world. No, in the world, but not of the world. But do you see here? The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit will make us long for friendship with God. This is something we believe. And, and I think if you're studying this in the Bible, you're going to find this idea most... Uh, accurately and powerfully, maybe powerfully is the best word there, you're going to find it most powerfully worked out in the letter of 1 John. What's the principle? That the Holy Spirit will convict the Christian who lives in compromise. Do you see the idea there in verse 5? It's simply this. The idea is, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Have you felt this? Have you experienced this? I know I have. I'm in some area compromise. And I feel the Holy Spirit yearn jealously, yearn to confess my sin, yearn to repent, 
yearn to get back in right relationship with God in that particular area. Now, it's kind of interesting because this phrase is a little hard to accurately translate because we don't know if this phrase in verse 5 refers to the Holy Spirit or to our own spirit. It could be this idea. God jealously yearns for the devotion of our spirit, which he put within us. It could be that. Or, and the second choice is probably a little more likely, that the Holy Spirit within us jealously yearns for the full devotion of our heart. It actually could be either one of them because both aspects are true. But you see, here's the idea is that God wants our allegiance to him and not fundamentally to the world. I like what F.B. Meyer wrote on this. He said this, quote, James went so far as to speak of them as adulterers and adulteresses, and then adopting a gentler pleading tone, he says, You are grieving the Holy Spirit who has come to dwell within you, who yearns with a jealous envy to possess your entire nature for himself. Brother, sister, are you grieving the Spirit of God? Is the Holy Spirit yearning in you jealously? And again, there is some legitimate jealousy, we can say, on behalf of the Holy Spirit here. Many times in the Old Testament, we have this concept of God being a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 16, and Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2. I mean, again and again, the Bible gives us a concept that God is a jealous God. Okay, we understand that. And why would he use such a term? Again, get back to the analogy that God makes between our relationship with him being something like a marriage relationship. And when we are unfaithful to him, when we are spiritual adulteresses, then God yearns for us jealously. Look, I'm going to use an example, and I hope it doesn't hit too close to home with too many of us. But think of the inner pain and torture inside the person who is betrayed by an unfaithful spouse. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You've had to live with that. Think about the people who must reckon with the truth. I am faithful to them, but they are not faithful to me. That is what the Spirit of God feels when our hearts are given over to the love of this world. That's powerful, isn't it? No, the Spirit yearns within us jealously. Now, by the way, one more thing before we move on to verse 6, and we're going to conclude this particular study with taking a look at verse 6. In verse 5, he says, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? you will not find that precise phrase that's quoted in the second half of James chapter 4, verse 5. You're not going to find that exact phrase anywhere in the Old Testament. Why then does James say, the scripture says? Probably he's referring to an idea that is expressed in many passages of the Old Testament. The scripture says it. It doesn't say it in those specific quoted words, 
But that idea is pronounced throughout the Old Testament. And so that's probably what he means there. Now, we've got to admit that the first several verses here are just kind of, man, they're, they're rough. Wars, jealousy, uh, impure pleasures, love of the world, all of this. That's why there's a beautiful sense of refreshment when we come to verse 6. Ready for this? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Oh, I love that verse. Let, let me read it again, just because I love it so much. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. First of all, I love the beginning of verse 6. But he gives more grace. You see, the same Holy Spirit that yearns in me jealously, that convicts me of sin, that lets me know that when I'm in compromise, when I'm in rebellion, not everything is right between me and God at the moment, that same Holy Spirit will also give me the grace to get right with God and to serve Him as I should. I love that statement. But He gives more grace. Don't you see that He's painting a contrast? There's the weakness of my worldliness. There's the weakness of my compromise. That's verses 1 through 5 of James chapter 4. But by the time we get to verse 6, what are we dealing with? But he gives more grace. I love it. It's a contrast. Now again, I think this is probably the third time that I'm quoting Spurgeon in this message, but I can't help it if he preached such amazing sermons on these passages. Let me quote you something from Charles Spurgeon here. He says this, quote, Note that contrast. Note it always. Observe how weak we are, how strong he is. How proud we are, how condescending he is, how erring we are, and how infallible he is, how changing we are, and how immutable he is, how provoking we are, and how forgiving he is. Observe how in us there is only ill, and how in him there is only good. Yet our ill but draws his goodness forth, and still he blesses. Oh, what a rich contrast. End of quote from Charles Spurgeon. Isn't that a beautiful contrast? I mean, look at it again with fresh eyes. Think of all my weakness, all my sin, all my worldliness that's described in the first five verses of James chapter 4, and then to realize, but he gives more grace. More grace? More than what? Well, more than all my sin in verse 5. If I've got a problem with sin, it's not because God's not giving enough grace. There is enough grace. And so there's no reason for me to live as a spiritual beggar. He gives more grace. And if I don't have enough grace in my life, if I don't have enough of his grace in my life, it's not because he's not giving it. It's because I'm not receiving it. He gives it. It's available. It's there but I need to receive it. Now, in the second half of verse 6, he tells us what often blocks us 
from receiving God's grace. Let me read you verse 6 in its entirety again. Ready? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, James is here reminding us that grace only comes to the humble. If God gives more grace, then why don't I always receive that grace and live in it and walk in it? There's really only one answer to that question. It's because of my pride. Grace and pride are eternal enemies. Pride demands that God blesses me because I deserve it, because I have earned it in some way. Now, Grace will not deal with me on the basis of anything that's in me, whether it's something I only imagine to be in me or something that really is in me. But no, grace deals with me on the basis of who God is. When God gives of grace, he gives because the reasons are in him for the giving. The reason isn't in me who receives or in you who receives. It's in God who gives. That's why humility is essential to receiving grace. You could say that grace and pride will always be enemies. So if you want to receive the grace of God, humble yourself. Don't wait for God to humble you. God can humble you. He's pretty good at humbling us. I've been humbled by God from time to time, and probably you have too. No, God knows how to humble us for sure. But listen, he gives more grace. But don't forget, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't forget that phrase either, that he resists the proud. Now look, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I read guys who are. Adam Clark says that a more literal translation of that phrase, that God resists the proud, is this, God sets himself in battle array against the proud. Wow. You want to do battle with God? You want God to do battle against you? Then walk in pride. Think of yourself as being the center of everything. Be self-centered instead of others-centered. That's a sure way to get God to resist you in some way. And again, if I could read something from John Trapp, we're going to go back to this old Puritan commentator once more. He says, God resisteth the proud, setteth himself in battle array against such above all other sorts of sinners as invaders of his territories, as foragers or plunderers of his chief treasures. Listen, we don't have to steal anything from God. And it's our pride that makes us in enmity with God, in opposition to him. But no, what do we do? We lay aside pride. We lay aside self-centeredness. We have nothing in our hands, nothing in my hand I cling to, but I only come, only my soul, my, my empty self do I bring to God and have him fill me with his amazing grace. You see, our humility doesn't earn the grace of God. Notice this. But God gives grace to the humble. The humble don't earn the grace of God. Humility merely puts me in a position 
to receive the grace that he so freely gives. I feel a little bad. We're going to end it right here. Next time we're going to come back and pick it up at verse 7. I feel a little bit guilty for ending it here because it continues right along and we'll kind of explain the context when we come back to verse 7 and explain how verse 6 flows right into 7. But don't miss this concluding point, dear friend. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now let me ask you a question. Which side of that equation would you like to be on? Would you like to be on the side where God is resisting you? Or would you like to be on the side where God is giving you his grace? There's only one answer to that question. Lord, please work in me a humble heart. I want to choose to humble myself before you, Lord. So as little as possible, you need to humble me. And in doing that, I'll find, going back to the beginning of the chapter, that I get along with my brothers and sisters a lot better. Don't you think it's amazing how verse 6 just connects back to the first few verses where he talks about the fighting and the wars that happen among believers? Oh, if we walked in greater humility, if we put away pride, if we walked in God's grace in a greater way, we'd get along better, wouldn't we? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Live and walk in his grace today. Receive it freely as you humble humble yourself before God and believe that he bestows his grace upon you. It's promised in his word. He'll do it because he's always faithful to his word. We'll pick it up next time at verse 7. Hope you can join us then for our next study through this book of James.